Man, that was just so good. We could go to the benediction and let them finish this up right now. Amen? Amen. All right, let's, um, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. We're stepping into 1 Peter, and we'll continue this all the way through the summer, through August. Excited about this series. But let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Chapter 1, uh, verses just 1 and 2 this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Just a funny story. It has nothing to do with the sermon this morning, but just because I like to make the sermon longer unnecessarily. Uh, so just because I was thinking back to Ben and Adam and Adam being taller than his dad, um, I, had to, I had to baptize a uh, member of the UK basketball team, a former UK basketball team when I was in Kentucky. His name was Todd Savota. This dude was a mountain of a man. I mean, he was seven feet tall, just under that, and trying to like walk him back like a tree down into the water was a task. Actually, me and the pastor that I served with at the time um, had, to, like, had to work at it together to get this guy into the water without making a huge scene, so it was pretty awesome. And I think he actually splashed the water water as well, so it is what it is, right? So, um, hey guys, this morning we get to jump into this series in Peter, and I'm super, super, super excited, encouraged. Um, this is, might be one of the series, like, to, to date, my favorite book that I've preached to is Daniel, which was two years ago, which you'll see a lot of corollaries to this text as well. And I just want to just encourage us this morning to, to think well about what we're about to study over the next few weeks. See, one of the tensions that Christians continually face in our lives in this, in this present moment is that sense that to be convictionally shaped by God's word and to, to be identified with the true Jesus is to increasingly feel um, that the world is not our true home. I, I just don't know how you can possibly think otherwise. Like if you're a believer, you feel this tension, do you not? You just, you just do. And I feel like right now we feel it a little bit more than other times, although it, we think in, it goes in cycles, I think. But Christians, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle here with this reality because we are not always honest about how, how we can easily give assent to propositional realities of our faith, right? Like these things we say we believe as believers. Um, and yet when the boots are on the ground, and uh, many of us find that those propositions are incredibly difficult to work out in this life, right? It's just, it's just what we all feel. I think, I think that would probably be a universal amen there. All of us, in one sense or the other, are seeking to build, in this life, and rightly so, a life, right? You, are, you, are, you bought a house, you have a job, you've, you've carved out, you've had children, and you are seeking to build a life here in Babylon. That's what this is. The Bible calls it, refers to the world as we know it as Babylon's another word for the world. Christians living in a world that's not their home. And you and I are constantly doing that, and, and we want to live quiet and peaceful lives. We see instruction in the scriptures to call us to live quiet and peaceful lives. In fact, G. Peter himself in his instructions will oftentimes parse that idea out, and it makes us uncomfortable because yet there's one side of Peter he will instruct us to live a life of good conduct before unbelievers and in a humble submission to ruling authorities, yet he instructs the church to be ready to give a defense of the gospel in any moment's notice. Amen. And it's not always easy to know when to do that, right? 
Paul does the same thing to his young protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.2, and he says to live a quiet and peaceful life with all your neighbors and Gentiles among you so that they may see and hear the gospel from your life as you live this life. And again, you're like, what? How, how do I do this boldly, convictionally, yet still live with peace, peaceably among my neighbors? It's not always easy to determine. And so those moments oftentimes come when the, our, our, these tensions come when those are heavenly identity and our heavenly values rub up against the earthly identity and the earthly values that we are immersed in in this among our non-christian neighbors and friends and, and family so it's not always easy to apply those redemptive propositions right those redemptive propositions that we hold too dearly um, when they feel threatened um, and, and all we want to do is just live peaceably among all men. It's just where we all are. Thus, what happens for us as Christians, we are Christian pilgrims. This is what we teased out in our series in Daniel, Christian pilgrims. We often feel like this Christian life is just uncomfortable. And it is. It's just uncomfortable. And there's really no way I can explain that away. There's nothing I can do to make the Christian life comfortable for you or me this morning. It's just what we are. And if you're living a world and, you're, and your engagement in the world is just so that you can live comfortably as a Christian, um, you really do need to re-examine the Bible. And frankly, Peter puts it very frankly here. You don't have that privilege to live a, comfortably as a Christian. Yes, you can live peaceably in quiet lives with, other, with, with non-believers, but you do, not have the, you do not have the privilege right now because this is not your home. We're going to tease this out this morning. It's not your home and you're not going to be comfortable here. At least you should not be comfortable here. It's just where we are. So where do we turn to find help in this? Where do we find wisdom for that tension in our lives? Well, 1 Peter, I think, in my estimation, might be the most succinct instruction in the entire Bible to this matter, uh, particularly in the New Testament, perhaps the entire Bible. If you're here, again, I mentioned a minute ago, if you were here two years ago, you know we studied through the book of Daniel, and you'll find a lot of that study, some similar um, complementary points of wisdom and instruction from that series, but we're going to tease out some more specific things in this epistle because the difference between Daniel and, um, and, 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 and say, Peter's is that Daniel, he, 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 he saw this vision of living as pilgrims in a home, in a place that wasn't their home, which is exactly what we see here in 1 Peter, but it was, and it was part narrative and part prophetic and had all these other different elements in it. Peter's letter is direct. It's a, it's, a, it's a didactic document. It's a teaching document. He intends the church to learn from this document and apply it so that you and I might live that peaceable and quiet life that we all long for, yet at the same time be bold and courageous for the gospel that we are instructed to do. He intends to give clear, and he will give us clear instruction in this book, in this letter, to the dispersed church and how we conduct ourselves amidst this, our pilgrimage home. That's what we're doing, right? We're, we're in a pilgrimage on our way home. So Peter's letter to the church dispersed, as we will find across Asia Minor, or, or what you might call modern-day Turkey, and facing significant struggles and suffering, like that, that, this letter is a modern-day manual for us on how we might endure too. So here's the main idea both of the, of the, of the letter, I think, and what we'll try to tease out this morning. Our present Christian pilgrimage is one that has lived as alien exiles, sojourning on our way to our true and better home with Jesus. 
okay? I'll say that again just in case you didn't get it the first time. Our present Christian pilgrimage is one that has lived as alien exiles, taken directly from our text this morning, almost directly, sojourning on our way to our true and better home. That's what we're seeking to see in 1 Peter. It is the theme of Peter's letter, and it will be the theme of our, letter this, our study this morning. So let's get a little brief introduction to the letter and to Peter and who this guy is. We all know him a little bit, but here's what you got to see in this letter. This letter is uh, both apostolic instruction, and it's also part personal journal of a fellow, fellow alien exile. And when we talk about being apostolic instruction, we see clearly here, and we'll, right here in the very beginning of the, of, the, of the book, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he makes no bones about it. He intends to teach in, in authoritatively to the church. He has the right to speak authoritatively. He has been the one um, uh, called out by the Lord to take on this particular office. That, that, that apostolic office is important, and it had a certain season. And Peter is that one of those apostles God has appointed to that task, and he, from the outset, he is not merely wanting you to see him as a fellow sojourner, but he was installed by Jesus as this authorized ambassador to establish and instruct the church. And friends, I just want to say it as clear as I can. We must receive this letter as such. We must. It's God's gift to us. But we all should see something more pastoral and, and, and gracious in this letter. It's, it's somewhat of a personal journal in some ways, as well, because it's clear that Peter's tone and tenure throughout this letter is one of that of a, of a pastor, not just an ap- ap- apostle, but as a pastor, a fellow brother who has, who has changed so much over his 30 years of ministry since that day when Jesus uh, welcomed him back and Jesus ascended into heaven and will return one day. He, those, those initial days when he was that disciple who was raw and boisterous, a little bit catty at times, right? Like this man has seen God do so many wonderful things of grace in his life. And, and so what he's doing in this letter is also reflecting on 30 years or more of grace. God's gracious provision and interaction and care for him throughout this time. Because you and I know Peter, and we just got out of John, you and I know Peter as that bold and brash disciple who had a hard time controlling his mouth. How many of you guys got that person in your house, right? I might be that person in that house, in the house, all right? Uh, I, I take the lead in that, let's put it that way. But this is how we know Peter. We know his high moment as a disciple was no doubt that time in Matthew 16 when Jesus comes to him and says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's on that rock that Jesus promises to bless and build his entire church off of that truth, that proposition as we talk about, right? That he, that's his high moment. Yet just moments later, if you continue reading through John, uh, Matthew 16, we find Peter sticking his foot back in his mouth. He's rebuking Jesus for talking about his death. And Jesus just says, Dude, Satan, right? Like, is that you? And so, like, you have this epic moment of confession, yet this, like, towering point of failure for Peter. This is what we see in Peter, right? We think his, probably think his epic low, his low moment, of course, would have been that denial of Jesus, which Ben led us through a few weeks ago in, uh, in John, um, what is it, John 16, I think. And Ben walked us through, through that during that time. In that moment where he makes this vow that he would never, oh no, he will never, ever, 
ever turn away from his Lord. And man, did that not end in a spectacular fail. This is the Peter we know. And this, of course, sent him into hiding, both for his own life, but also out of shame. Right? But that's not all we know of Peter. Again, Ben did a great job last week finishing up in John for us, um, reminding us that the stories of grace never end there. Our stories of grace never end with our successes and our failures. The stories of grace always continue in that experience where Jesus draws near to us, the Holy Spirit draws near to us, that in that resurrecting power, and he shows us that he, he still loves us and he is committed to us and he's, his covenant promises are always true. And so he does this with Peter. He, he not only restores him in John 21, but not only that, but he commends him and he commands him and he gives him this task to shepherd the sheep that he, Jesus would give to him. And then after Jesus ascends and they're all kind of wondering when the promised Holy Spirit is going to fall, right at the day of Pentecost, we know that history's most memorable sermon was preached by Peter, right? 3,000 souls were saved. Two chapters later, preaching again, couple more thousand souls are saved. God's grace is immeasurable. It's not about Peter's successes or failures. It's not about your successes and failures. It's about Jesus' faithfulness to you. It's about God's faithfulness to you. Peter performed miraculous signs and wonders. He, he stood boldly before the Jewish leaders when he arrested, informing them that he would not, not again deny his master when he stood before those those, those, those religious leaders in that day, when they threatened him, said, stop preaching this stuff. He says, I cannot. And I won't. I did it once. I won't do it again. Not because it was his strength, but because he had experienced grace. Grace drove that second response. I believe that with all my heart. He resolved theological problems in the church. He was right in the middle of those. He rebuked sin where sin was evident. He, he was even the one who inaugurated the mission to the Gentiles before Paul was converted and was installed to that task. And mixed into all of this, wonderful works of grace, we still see a man who struggles from time to time. It wasn't an instant change. It, it, was, it was an up and down. It was a, it was a hike through valleys and inclines. Because he struggled, just like you and I do, to live as an alien exile. One of the most notable points is when the Judaizers start penetrating the church and they're wondering about the qualifications of Gentiles to be included in the church without being circumcised. And Peter, because he's fearful what the Judaizers think, he pulls back from the Gentiles in his relationship with the Gentiles. And we know that Paul later on, Paul confronts him on this and Paul calls him out. We see this in Galatians as well. So we don't see a man who's even just had this instant change. We see a man who had these ups and downs, just like all of us here. Amen. See, this letter, again, as I said, it was written over 30 years of hard yet faithful ministry after Jesus' ascension. Some 60, this was probably written around 65 AD. And it's dripping with Peter's own experience of grace because who, I argue, who would know better the beauty and power of God's grace than Peter? I would say it would be hard to argue. It had to be Peter or Paul, right, in terms of what we know in Scripture all the details we have about them. And friends, I don't know if this is enough for you, but I hope it is. It's enough for us to stir our joy in studying this, this text this week, this next, next couple months. Like, because Peter was both this apostolic authority and fellow, fellow alien, and that should be deeply encouraging to the church. 
He's not all that different from you and I. The Bible is not a collection of superheroes for God. The Bible is about pointing to the one hero, Jesus, who is the one who rescues his people. And Peter, Peter recognized that. And so from the time he penned this letter, he's in Rome. He's facing his own challenges in Rome. And he's still wanting the church spread out across Asia Minor to know the goodness and grace and peace of his God that he has experienced over and over again for 30 more years. There's two things I want to see in this text this morning. So there's your introduction. Two things I want us to see in this text. I've got them under two headings. We'll see just in these first two verses. First, I want us to look at our alien identity as the church of God. And second, I want to look at our blessings as alien exiles. Okay? We will look at our alien identity as the church of God. And then we will look at the blessings of being an alien exile. Um, so let's look at that first point there. Again, let's look at it to those whom, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Like, he's writing a letter to a very specific group of people. They are identified as elect exiles, and they are dispersed across this region. Again, what we know as modern-day Turkey, uh, northern Asia Minor. It's where really the, near where the great cent- epicenter of Christian expansion would come, and Antioch wasn't too far from this region, more south, I think, but... Nonetheless, this is where he's writing to. He's writing to elect exiles. If you have a New American Standard, it probably says something like those who reside as aliens and who are chosen. Um, If you're reading a CSB, Christian Standard Bible, you probably see chosen as exiles. If you're reading the NIV, God's elect, strangers in the world. Whatever your designation is there, what we have here is this idea. What does it mean to be elect exiles? Well, when you pull all that together, Peter is... Uh, writing to a people who are resident aliens. Resident aliens. This is what the church is. The church is a collection, a group of resident aliens. Being elect, then, in Peter's mind, is that chief reason for our alien status, which is our spiritual status. When you think about being elect, that is what makes you an alien, because you are not of this world. Election points to you are now made and called and made a citizen of another kingdom, of another world. So to talk about being an elect, we are talking about the fact that we are aliens. That's why that, you see that in other translations. To be an alien, then, is to be a different kind of human. Not a necessarily you and I and ourselves, a more superior, more deserving, righteous humanity, but one that has been selected and plucked out from among humanity for God's gracious purposes, for his purposes of redemption. And therefore, we are restored to be a humanity, uh, to be the true humanity, if you will. A humanity that would reflect more of God's desire and, and, and purposes that we see in the garden. That they are to be there to be his ambassadors, to be uh, to the world, to multiply and fill the world. That's what humanity was supposed to be, made in the image of God. These are the elect These are aliens. This is what you are, church. If you are a member of the body of Christ and you have pressed and you've trusted to Jesus, you are an alien. You are an elect alien. And he describes what this means, exactly what, how does someone become an alien in this sense, elect alien. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with 
blood, this idea that we are elected to foreknowledge of God. Let me, let me say, say something here. There's some really bad exegetical work that happens with this. When you think about foreknowledge here, you are not talk, we are not talking about a God who, who sits in time and space, looks forward to a future time and space, and says, I'm going to save them based on their future actions. That's not foreknowledge according to Scripture. That might be foreknowledge in the way we use it in modern language and discourse, but that's not foreknowledge. He's not, he's not, he's not sitting at some time and space and saying, oh, okay, well, because they made a decision here in some future time, I'm going to elect them back here so that that actually becomes true. That's not what this verse, and I hear so many Christians talk about this and say this, and it's bad mama jumbo, folks. It's just not good. Okay, it's not good exegetical work. What foreknowledge means, you need to put it back in the context of what foreknowledge meant to the Israelites. To foreknow was something of intimacy, something of covenantal impact. When God said he foreknew Abraham and Abraham, it was him choosing Abraham out of his pagan world, and he was his. God made the decision, that's his. Abraham is his, and God will build his family, this new family, off of this man. Foreknowledge does indeed mean that God can see in the future, does see in the future, and sees the future outcomes of human history, but it is way more than that. The Old Testament speaks of God's foreknowledge in covenantal relations. It speaks of God's union with his people by virtue of his own redeeming love for a people of his own choosing. Amen? That's foreknowledge. So then the elect are a wholly different kind of human, not defined by geography, not defined by cultural or ethnic distinctives, but by spiritual and heavenly distinctives. That's why the church can be a global people, because we're not defined by those other things. See, this election comes then also, it says, by means of the sanctification of the Spirit, by the sprinkling of blood. What does this mean? It means that our redemption is by virtue of the washing of regeneration by the Spirit, which is applied to us by what? By the person and work of Jesus. Through his meritorious work as the Son of God, our Savior, by his substitutionary death for us. That's what election is. The foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the Spirit applied through the person and work of Jesus by the sprinkling of his blood over us. It's what we've witnessed in baptism. It's what we will participate in the Lord's Supper with here in a little while. This is what it is. But it's not just that, but for the obedience of Jesus Christ. So Peter has in mind that our salvation has an end. It has a goal, at least an earthly goal. And that earthly goal is to obey Jesus. It says it right there in the text. This means our lives, and Peter will tease this out throughout the next five chapters or so, our lives are to be a holy aroma to God because of the word work of redemption he's done in our lives. 1 Peter 1.15 makes it as most clear. And our friend uh, Gabriel Roan, who will be preaching here in a few weeks, in our, well, actually, I've given him this text to unpack for us in June. He says, but as he who called you is holy, Peter says, you also be holy in all your conduct. So this is a theme that we'll find throughout Peter, that it's not just our works are just sort of important, but they really are important. Now, our works don't make us 
right with God. Only the blood of Jesus makes us right with God. But then we are created, as, first, as, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are created for the work, by the workmanship of God for the good works. For good works. So this is something that's a huge theme in Peter's letter. Now, what does this mean for us? What this means for us is what we find here is a complete picture in these first two verses of what the Christian life entails. And that Peter in, will proceed to apply what it means to be a Christian in various contexts, like how we relate to governing authorities and how we relate to each other, men and women in marriage, and how we are to, you know, all kinds of other things we'll see in this text, how we're to conduct ourselves among the Gentiles. This, you can't divorce your salvation, you can't divorce your gospel transformation and the work that Jesus has done by his grace alone. You cannot divorce it from the ongoing transformation and holiness that is to be, that is, that is promised to us in the spirit. Promised to us in the spirit. Our election and sanctification then is in the spirit is the chief foundation for this ongoing pursuit of holiness in our life. Don't mistake that. Grace produces fruit. If you want to put it as simply as I know how, grace produces fruit. It just does. But we're exiles as well. We're alien exiles. We are, as we see up there, we are elect exiles. I'm sorry, in our text here this morning. To be an exile then speaks to something about our present circumstance, our present context. It's both earthly yet temporary. To be in exile means you're not where you're in a home you're supposed to be. You're now residing in a home that's not your home, and you're putting up roots in that home, at least for a season, knowing that that's not where you're going to end up in the long run. Right? So you might know this in the vantage point of, like, you left home and went to college somewhere. And you put up temporary residency in, the, in that university town. You may have never went home. After, you may have made your home somewhere else. But we all know that. And yet now I've been here in Nashville for 14 years. It doesn't feel so temporary anymore. Uh, I don't know that God will ever lead us back to Virginia or North Carolina or East Tennessee or wherever we're from. I mean, Lord, I don't know. We have roots everywhere, right? And some of you guys do too. But the facts are, you were there. You didn't know how long you were going to be there. But you put up temporary residency by so much as buying a house, getting a job making a life there. This is what we have. We need to understand in terms of our exilic mentality. We, Peter's talking to this group of churches, these group of elect exiles who are dispersed across Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He has this particular concern for this association of churches that are, that are gathered across this, this, this northern territories of Asia Minor. Again, modern-day Turkey. If you want to know a lot of really interesting facts about Turkey, I'm going to go ahead and call them out. Go talk to the Crips. They, they spent a good amount of time there. They would give you all the information about this culture you could ever want. It's amazing. But these churches... We're experiencing great hardships, but their hardships were directly related to what? Their alien status. Not alien that they were from another nation, not an alien that they were from another culture, but they were alien because they were a wholly different people redeemed by God. That their, their struggles, the way we should imply from Peter, is that these were elect exiles in this region because it's, their exile is related not to anything other than the fact that they are God's people. God's people will face difficult circumstances. 
And this letter was not to one congregation, but a litter of congregations, right? It was a letter to many churches across a larger region who were facing similar sufferings and trials. So then, what we need to understand here is that Peter's letter is more than just some specific letter like Paul wrote to the Ephesian church or to the Colossian church, but to a a vast group of churches, and it was meant to be of universal application. And I would argue that that same universal application applies to us. Uh, We might be in different contexts, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but that's what we are meant to do. So again, here's some application time. What, What does this mean for you and I in terms of understanding the exile that we are in, this temporary residency? Well, means that our exile in this world is also a residency that is temporary in a land that's not our home. I mean, you get this, right? You, you do realize that no matter how much you put your stakes down, this is going to end someday. Um, we're, we're big fans, and you can judge us later. We're fans of the show Yellowstone. Um, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying we're fans of it. Uh, but uh, there's this offshoot called 1883, which is the kind of formation of how this family gets to Montana. And they're just looking for a home. And they're just looking for a home, and they want to put up stakes there. And then Ford and Yellowstone basically is pointing to the fact that that home's coming to a conclusion. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. That's what we need to recognize about our own self, is that our residency is temporary because this land is not our home. second thing I want us to recognize there is our suffering and trial in exile will wax and wane depending on the particulars of our given context. That means that, means that all the things that are particular about these churches in modern-day Turkey, for instance— are, are not necessarily to be, and how they are to address those things, are not necessarily to apply um, one-to-one ratio to say how we might apply them here, or you might apply them in England or Western Europe or Eastern Europe or Russia or China. Like, all the churches will have to figure out what it looks like to be faithful in those contexts. Some of you guys, again, Turkey, we got, we got, we got people who've been all over the world here in this, in this congregation in various contexts, and you know that being faithful in those contexts sometimes looks a little differently than other contexts. And I think we should really, really think about that well. Why? Because the particulars of our struggle, for instance, here in our present Western context and the necessary ways in which we bring the gospel to bear here will look different than, let's say, our friends in, oh, I don't know, China. And so if we use language in a way of what it means to be faithful here in America and we use it as so, so narrowly that the church can only be faithful if it does one thing, we respond this way because otherwise we are not being faithful to the gospel, then we, have a, we cannot have any identity with our friends in, in China because, man, the underground church there is huge. And they have to apply faithfulness a little differently than us. And we need to be careful about how narrowly we define what it means to be culturally engaged as Christians here in a Western context and how much that means to be in gospel faithful people, you know? And so I just want to make sure we say that because, I, again, I think in this very moment we're in right now, the church in America is at this kind of cross points where we, we, we can lose our testimony, we can lose our gospel proclamation, all because we want to fight about tangent issues. Tangent issues. And not keep it about Jesus. And, it, and, 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 and even in the American context, it's like versus our own context is, we might find churches feel different convictions about what faithfulness looks like. Okay? 
I would argue the church in varying places has a great amount of liberty in how we live out our faithfulness and our, to our mission. And therefore, uh, so long as we, have the, we are clear about our defense of the gospel, whatever our context may be. Last thing I'd want to say on this issue before we move on to our last, our last final point is our exile, and I mentioned a minute ago, is entirely due to our alien status. I mentioned it, but I want to tease it out a little bit more. We are exiles because our home is not here. And our home's better than this home. And we know it. And it makes us uncomfortable here. And the world knows our home's better. And they don't like that. Our alien status is entirely entirely due, I'm sorry, our exile is entirely due to our alien status. Christians will never feel at home here, and if that is what our ambition is as the church today, we are, that's where we, that is where we are risking giving the gospel away and giving up on the truth of God's word. Christians must be careful not to look to this world to provide us our heavenly rights. I know I got an amen on that one, right? The world's not here to give us our heavenly rights. And so when we step up and, tr- and, and speak truth to certain things, the world doesn't necessarily, in our context, depending on what context you're in, doesn't necessarily like, like our job is not to fight for our right to have that right. Jesus has already given us that right. And Peter is going to show us this a lot in this letter. A lot in this letter. But we can find and we can and we can live lives that are faithful and grace-filled and quiet and patient in this world and, and be able to share the gospel wherever we are in whatever context we find ourselves. So that's what it means to be alien exiles. That is our identity as the church. But Peter doesn't just leave us there. He leaves us with this call to worship. This general broad thing he wants to this, the church to know. And you see it right there in the end of chapter, uh, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Nasby, your New American Standard friends, may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. NIV friends, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. When Peter talks about grace, clearly here Peter is reflecting on his own experience of grace, as I've already mentioned over these past 30 years, and how God has sustained him for the task that he was appointed to. And he wants the church to experience the same thing. We must remember and we must rest in the same grace. Momentary afflictions are merely that. They're momentary. You know, the heat might be here for a moment, but it's just for a moment, okay? It's just for a moment. God is gracious to his people. He provides what we need. He helps us to stand when things look gloomy. And Christians, listen, we know that in spite of the challenges that we have faced as God's people over, this, over the centuries, and we can look back through church history and say, we know, we know with all of our heart that God has, has helped his people stand, and in some cases, in many cases, even prosper in the midst of trials and persecution. We have nothing to fear. Not in this. 
But he says, grace and peace. See, Peter desires that the church would know the full measure of the peace of God's sovereign rule that resides with them as they wait for the helm that is to come. The world will always be in constant flux, and the church will always experience the choppy waves of the changes that go on in our world, but the church has a peace that surpasses all of those things. Friends, nations come and go. Kings and rulers come and go. Cultures and values shift with the sands of time. But we can know the peace of God in all of it. An ungodly fear that can take root in our hearts is that fear that where, where we let anxiety and we let the fears of this world completely rule us. It doesn't mean that we can't feel anxiousness. Man, I know I do. I know I struggle with anxiousness at times. That's not necessarily a sin. But when anxiousness rules us, it is a sin. And we need to recognize that we have grace and peace for the journey. We have grace and peace for this pilgrimage. And we have it in abundance. We have it in full measure. We have it in, um, in multiple, multiplied to us, as the ESV says. There's more grace and peace to be found in God that far surpasses the wearisome and fretful realities that this world throws at us. Amen. I've, uh, you've heard someone, maybe heard pastors say this before, I, I'll say it. Um, you, if you're a believer, you can't out God's grace. And you can't outbreak it. God's got enough for you. It's abundant. Like the wells of God's grace are deep. Our sin's serious. Again, what we said before, holiness is, is call, or the call. It's not our salvation by any stretch of the imagination, and, and by any stretch of imagination, but we are called, and we, have, we, we are called to this, but yet there's grace when things are not where they should be. And friend, if you're in that place this morning, just know that there's enough grace, more than enough grace, to, to match that sin that's enraptured your heart this morning. It's full measure. It's abundant. Friends, what would our lives look like as the church with grace and peace that was given to us with God was, was, was experienced with this unending stream and never ending, or as a never-ending treasure in our lives? So let's wrap it up. Set ourselves up well for the weeks ahead. Here's Peter's goal to remind the church of our status of our privilege, of our responsibilities. We're going to see this a lot over the next few weeks. Our status, our privileges, and our responsibilities. We live as pilgrims in this life. A truly Christian life is a pilgrim life. That is a direct quote from the first sermon I had in Daniel two years ago. The Christian life is a pilgrim life. Embrace it. But as we're living a pilgrim life, we need to remember that we are God's people. We are God's elect. And that God has given abundant grace to his resident aliens here now and, and until he returns. And then he commands and empowers progressive and increasing holiness in his alien people. And he leads us into the mission he has for us during our temporary residency. Amen. See, I want you to, can we just lean in on this one for a second? If, if our concept this morning of a fruitful Christian life 
doesn't correspond with what I just said, being God's people, the elect, living in abundant grace, living with abundant graces as resident aliens, and living with the power of the Spirit for progressive holiness and an intermission. If that's not our concept of fruitful Christian life and it doesn't correspond to these things, you and I, as people who profess Christ, are wearing an ill-fitted wardrobe for the Christian life, and it needs to be taken off, and you need to put on the real wardrobe of Jesus. Okay? Don't wear an ill-fitted wardrobe. It'll never feel right to you if a Christian, as a Christian. You are God's people. He has enough grace for you. He wants you to be faithful and holy. And he wants his church to, 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 to keep moving forward. That is what we're about. See, I, I want us to look at Peter's words, and this is my last word. I want Peter's words, his letter, to be kind of this apostolic personal journal given to us by the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where he testifies to the work of grace in his life all these many years so that you and I can experience the same grace. I don't know how many of you journal in here. I was telling the elders, I, I want to get to a place where I journal. I'll journal again. I don't have not journaled in quite a long time. Um, and, it, and it's probably private, and that's probably necessary, right? But praise be to God Amen. that God took, and through his spirit, inspired Peter to, and I let me use it this way, make his journal public so that you and I can learn from that grace. Learn from that grace. Let's pray.